Welcome to the Outpouring Orlando Sermon Podcast. We exist to help people grow in Christ, share the gospel, and serve the community. Thank you so much for tuning in, and we hope you enjoy today's message. Well, let me give you context before we get to the scripture. Here's what I'll do. I'll give you context. Psalm 16, here's the context. Psalm 16 is written by a gentleman by the name of David. David eventually becomes Israel's greatest king. You may have heard of him because you've heard of David and Goliath. And so I just want to want to give you like a cursory glance at context here because I don't want to assume that you know who David is. But Psalm 16, the setting is this. Many believe, we're not sure, but the setting we believe is that David, before he becomes king, um, he is uh, running. He's on the run. And I don't mean on the run like Jay-Z and Beyonce. I mean, he's like somebody's really chasing him. Uh, He's on the run from this guy by the name of King Saul. King Saul is the present king. King Saul and and David have a very weird relationship. Uh, King Saul seems to love and hate David at the same time. They have a weird relationship. And so David is on the run from King Saul. King Saul wants to kill David because King, the Bible tells us that because of David's uh, military exploits, And the people are cheering David's name, although King Saul is still in position. He gets jealous because people are celebrating David. He's jealous of David. He dreads David. He hates David. And at this juncture, he wants to kill David. But David is such a man of honor and integrity that David knows that God has called him to be king, but he's not going to kill the man that's presently in the position because that's that's jobs of God to get him out of there. David's not in a rush to do something outside of God's timing. That's a good lesson for us, right? But, but David is on the run, and so David is seeking refuge. Uh, Saul is chasing after David, and so David is trying to find somewhere to run. And so here's what we need to know about this. We see a man here in the text who finds himself in trouble, or quite frankly, he's in a situation that he didn't put himself in. Sometimes you will find yourself in a situation that you had nothing to do with. You just find yourself there. And David is finding himself in this situation at this time. And David has two options. Either David can figure it out on his own or he can take the better option and run to God. So he has two options. Figure this out on my own by myself or I can run to God. And so what we see here in this psalm is a portrait, a prayer of a man who treats God as his first choice, not as his last resort. We see a man who treats God as his first choice, not as his last resort resort. And what we'll see is that there are benefits to following God. There are actually benefits to seeking after God and making God your priority. And what we'll see is a man that finds himself in less than ideal circumstances. But even in that, there are two things that he has. David has contentment and confidence. David has contentment and confidence, even though he has less than ideal circumstances. He is reaping the benefits of a relationship with God. And so here's what we need to take away from that is this. It is possible to have a challenging, hard, and far less than perfect circumstance and still have contentment because God is your first choice. Psalm 16. Protect me, God, for I take refuge in you. I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have nothing good besides you. As for the holy people who are in the land, they they are noble ones. All my delight is in them. The the sorrows of those who take another God for themselves will multiply. I will not pour out their drink offerings of blood, and I will not speak their names with my lips. 
Verse 5 says this, Lord, you are my portion and my cup of blessing. You hold my future. What a statement. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I will bless the Lord who counsels me. Even at night when my thoughts trouble me, I can't go to sleep at night. I got stuff on my mind. I'm worried. I'm stressed. I always let the Lord guide me because he is at my right hand. And I will not be shaken. I don't care what happens outside. I'm in God, so therefore I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My body also rests secure. For you will not abandon me to show. You will not allow your faithful one to see decay. You reveal the path of life to me. In your presence is abundant joy at your right hand or eternal pleasures. Let us pray. Father, we just thank you for this gracious opportunity, God, to worship you together this morning. Lord, we love you. We thank you. We praise you. We bless you today. God, I pray for everybody in this room today, Lord. I pray that this is not just an ordinary, regular come to church Easter Sunday, God, but I pray that you do something supernatural in our midst today, God. I I pray that you would transform our lives. Lord, I pray today, God, that sinners are forgiven. I pray that we find new life in Christ Jesus. So, Father, for the unbeliever who is here today, God, I pray that they would see the good news of the gospel. They would respond to it. I pray for that person, God, who was walking with the Lord and got interrupted. I pray today, Father, that they would awaken, God, and trust you again. And for the person who's here today, and they are just curious, God, they got questions about faith. They don't don't understand stuff. They question things about Christianity. They're not sure about Christ, and they're not sure about the church. They want Jesus. They want a relationship with God, but they can do without the church. God, I pray for that person today, God, that their eyes will be open, God, that their hearts will be drawn to you. And so ultimately, Lord, I pray that your son Jesus be lifted up. I pray that our eyes get off of ourselves and onto Christ, the only one who can save us. And so, Father, we thank you today. We praise you. We bless you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. The people of God said amen. You can take your long-awaited seat. My sermon title this morning is Psalm 16, a resurrection psalm. Psalm 16, a resurrection psalm. A CNN article published this morning, actually, April 17th, 2022, article titled, Why This Easter Feels Different. Why This Easter Feels Different. In the article this morning, it is referencing Easter in, in, in light of the pandemic, in light of the last two years. Um, there comes a point in the article when they reference the resurrection of Jesus and the effect, the transforming effects that it had on the disciples of Jesus. And in reference to the disciples, says this, in reference to the disciples witnessing the resurrected Jesus, the article states that what the disciples actually saw was a matter of faith. But what is undeniable today is that many people have experienced a spiritual transformation because of the pandemic. They, too, discovered surprising reservoirs of spiritual strength and fervor. I thought this was very interesting. A Pew Research Center survey in 2020 revealed that three in 10 Americans said that the pandemic actually increased their faith a level higher than any other advanced country in the world. During one particular frightened part of the pandemic, 
Google searches for prayer surged to the highest level ever recorded. And here's what I believe. I think that people realize that the only place to truly find safety and refuge in this life was in God. I think the pandemic revealed to us that the only thing certain in this life is God. The only thing that we actually should be dependent upon that we can be certain about is that God is real and he can be trusted. And so what we see here is a man who was in a situation that he did not see coming, that he did not anticipate. We see a man in a situation that he found himself in less than ideal circumstances. And the first thing is that we'll see is that he grounded his entire life in a relationship with God. So there are four things that we're going to look at this morning. Then I'll be out of your way. Four things we're going to look at this morning. Number one is we're going to look at this man's relationship with God. The second thing we're going to see is the result of his relationship with God. The third thing that we'll look at is the rewards of a relationship with God because there are rewards in a relationship with God. And the fourth thing we're going to look at is a resurrection in God. So, so number one, relationship. Number two, results. Number three, rewards. And number four, we'll look at relationship. But the first thing that we see in the text is that David, the psalmist who wrote this psalm, says, protect me, God, for I take refuge in you. Da David is not crazy enough to think that he can survive what he's going through without running to God. He, he's essentially saying that my enti the entirety of my well-being is dependent on God. Like, like what he's saying is, God, God, you are the source of everything that is good in my life. And so we see a man who is a strong man, who's a strong man, an independent man. He, he is running to God. And I want to give you some context. Some of you have heard of David before. If you know anything about the Bible, if you read it, David in his youth, David was like a shepherd boy. But what we know about David is David was killing bears and lions with his bare hands. David is a strong dude. I don't think nobody in here, if I serve, serve when was the last time you killed a bear? Right? You might have went to build a bear, but, but, but you didn't kill a bear, right? D David uh, literally killed a bear. D David would literally take the lambs out of the lion's mouth with his bare hands. So, so David ain't no weak dude. David is not a punk. David is a, is a strong man. But you may also have heard of David because this is the same David who when he was a young boy and he was enlisted, Saul brought him there, uh, brought him, uh, was, was training David. And what did David do? David had to face this giant called uh, uh, Goliath. And David takes this smooth stones and this slingshot and David kills the giant that nobody else could kill and everybody else was afraid of David is a strong man but even in all of his strength even in all of his accomplishments David was not crazy enough to think that he had strength on his own what we see in David is a man that is not self-reliant but he is a man that is God-reliant and that is the crux of Christianity it is that we're not strong enough on our own we actually need God that's called grace and so what we see here is work versus grace and David decides that he needs the grace of God so he consumes himself with God let me tell you this today I don't care how strong you are you need God you need God he says you are my Lord and so I want you to know this about David David doesn't have an idea of God like I know God exists but I got some questions no David says you are my God. He doesn't say you are God. He says you are my God. Why is that? Because David makes it personal. 
He's saying, God, you, you, are, you are my Lord. You are my master. I take my orders from you. I, I take my direction from you. And so let me put it in proper context in the make it make sense section of today's sermon. When we see David say, you are my Lord, it's the same thing if you grew up in church. Some of us grew up in church. Some of us grew, some of us grew up in traditional churches. When the person gets up and says, giving honor to God, who's the head of my life, I like to thank my Savior, my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. David is saying, this is, he's my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He's my safety. He's my security. God is my everything. God, you are, you are my Lord, and I have nothing good besides you. Does that mean that there was nothing else good going on in David's life? No, that's not what David is saying. What David is saying, that nobody can satisfy me like God can. When I compare the goodness of God and everything else that I encounter, nothing compares to him. God is so great that he makes everything else look like it's not good. And so David consumes himself in his relationship with God. He realizes this, that oftentimes we detach, we make attempts to detach from God, but everything that we detach from, when we detach from God to attach to something else, Whatever we attach ourselves to oftentimes leaves us wanting and unsatisfied. Let me say this. Ambition is good, but ambition is not everything. What profit a man to gain the whole world but lose his soul? This is David. And we don't know if David wrote this before he became king or not. But David is on the horizon of having the access to everything. And even if he is king at the time of his writing this, even if he's reflecting back on his past, what we know is this, that even the man who has access to everything, all of the money, all of the luxuries that he could ever, that he could ever want, he says, I have nothing good besides God. He realizes that God is so good, but there are things, there are things that are in God that you can't get in the world. Nothing can satisfy us like God. David has consumed himself with God in his relationship. He desires what God desires. He loves what God loves. When you love God and you desire God, there is outworkings of your love for God. When you love God, something happens to you. And you know how you work your love out for God. You know how you can test your love for God, how you interact with other people. Which brings me to my second point. The result of a relationship with God. The result of a relationship with God. David's love of God coincides with his love of people. It says in verse 3 that as for the holy people who are in the land, they are the noble ones. All my delight is in them. He is talking about those who have a relationship with God. He says, my delight is in them. And so this reminds me of something that Jesus once said. Because Here's the problem with us. Many people say that they love God, and I've heard many Christians say this, I don't really do people. I'm cool on people. I'm, I'm, cool, I'm cool on people. Like, I'm, I'm all right. I'm, I'm all right on people. But you know what Jesus once said in Matthew 22, verses 37 through 40? You know what Jesus said? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important commandment to love God first but the second is just like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets depend on these two things, two commands, because you can love God all you want. But if you don't love your neighbor, you might as well cancel out the other one. 
Love of God works itself out in love of people. And it's amazing to me because in our generation, people say they love God, but they have a real problem with loving his people. And this does not take away from the fact that people are hard to love. I'll level with you. People are hard to love. People are really hard to love, but it does not excuse us when we don't love them anyway. People are hard to love. Have you been to a restaurant lately? Do you know how hard it is to get good service after the pandemic? Do you, know, do you know how hard it is for somebody to come to your table with a good attitude these days? Do you know how hard it is to go through a drive through and not have somebody turn their nose up for you because you asked for an extra pack of ketchup? Do you know what it's like to, to have somebody roll their eyes at you because you want one extra Polynesian sauce at Chick-fil-A? Do you, do you know what that's like? Pe- people people are, are hard to love. But when you love God, you see people as God sees people. And you know how God sees people? God sees people as people who are made in his own image. God sees people that he took the time to intricately design and put into this world. And so everybody is worthy of dignity and honor and respect. And so although people are hard to love, it doesn't take us take away from our responsibility to love them. You know what? You know what's crazy about our ability, our, our, the ability Um, Our inability to love people or the hardness of loving people is that we assume that we are easy to love. Now, now it's a lot of us in here today. And I would be crazy to assume that that there's nobody, nobody in here. That's the crazy uncle. (laughs) That that nobody, none of us in this room are that one cousin that's showing up. There's oh, here they come. Oh, God, that might be you. But the problem with that cousin, that family member, nobody tells them that that, that's who they are. Right? We assume that that's not us. But let me tell you this. If you are a sinner, you are hard to love. If you are a sinner, you are hard to love. But God sees you as an image bearer. And so God loves you. And guess what? You are not worthy of God's love. And so we love people. It's not based off of whether they deserve it or not. You say things like this. They got to earn my respect. They got to prove to me that they're worthy of my love. God doesn't do that to you. God takes you as you are. As sinful and as messed up as you are. And so we have a relationship with God. It works itself out in our love for other people. But I think the problem with us is that we have a hard time enjoying other people because we don't enjoy God first. And so if you are having relational problems today, if you are having a hard time getting along with your family today, if you're having a hard time getting along with your spouse today, if you're having a, long, a hard time getting along with your co-workers today, if you're having a hard time getting along with your significant other today, let me first suggest to you that maybe you want to try loving God first. I just gave you the keys to life. L- love God first. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. This is the first and the greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. And this is the key that, 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 that he, he tells us. Do, do, let me ask the Christians in the room. Do, do, do you love other Christians and want to be in community with them? Because if the answer is, well, I love God, I, I don't really like church people. 1 John 4 and 20 says this, 
if someone says, I love God, but hates a fellow believer, that person is a liar. For if we don't love people we can see, how can we love a God whom we cannot see? God is saying, if you say you love me, but you say, I don't really do church people, I don't really like, I don't really like the saints. God's saying, your love for me is cap. God, this is what John is saying in 1 John chapter, stop capping. Stop capping. Because there's no way you can love me in the way I love you back. And that not work out in other people. You can't have one without the other. I want to say this. This is, I'm a pastor, so I put my cards on the table. I'm not trying to do a switcheroo on you. Here's what you need to know. God and the church are a package deal. Shameless plug for the local church. I'm a pastor. I would say the same thing if I was not a pastor. I've been in church my entire life. No church is perfect. Uh, no Christian is perfect. So to come into church thinking that you'll never get hurt, you'll never get disappointed, you're not looking for a church. You're looking for a utopia. You'll get that when you get to heaven, but the way in which God works character in your life is to put you into a body of believers to let you know that you are not perfect, that there are, there's room for growth, that there's room for improvement. The way you learn patience is by having to deal with people that you want to lose your patience on. The way that you gain self-control in this life is not to be by yourself. You gain self-control by having to line up and work with somebody else, knowing that if you weren't saved, you... Hmm. But you can't do that by yourself. You got to get in the community with people who are not like you, who don't vote like you, who don't think like you, who don't like what you like, who don't listen to what you listen to, who don't watch the TV shows that you watch. You got to get in community with them because in that you can learn and God can build character in your life. You need to hang around. You don't watch friends. You need to hang around with some people that watch friends. I don't watch. I don't watch friends. My wife does. I'm a power kind of guy. Don't judge me. See? See, see, y'all judging the pastor today. L love me like God loves you. But in all seriousness, Acts chapter 20 says that the church is who Christ died for. He purchased the church with his own blood. You know what? You know the scripture. Husband, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That ain't even really about marriage. It's actually about God's love for the church. He gave himself up. Know what, know what that means? He gave his life for the church. So how can you dislike or have a disdain for that which God was willing to love and die for? And so the psalmist has a result of his relationship with God, and that result is that he loves other people. He loves the saint. However, it contrasts with his relationship with those who are unbelieving or the, the wicked in the world. Verse 4 says, the sorrows of those who take another God for themselves will multiply. He says this, I will not pour out their drink offerings of blood and I will not speak their names with my lips. And so, so here's the context. Of course, in David's day, there was a lot of idolatry. People made sacrifices to all kinds of gods in the uh, the sun god and the moon god and Baal and gods who control the weather, so they assumed. And so people would make sacrifices. Oftentimes, when God wasn't moving as quick as they wanted him to move, they tried something different. And so I want to I bring this down to you because you're probably thinking, oh, I don't, I don't, worship, I don't, I don't worship an idol. 
I don't worship no idols. Let me say something. Anything that you put in place of God, even if it's a good thing, becomes an idol. That can be a person. That can be your money. That can be your career. That can be your children. Let me tell the parents something. God gave your kids his gifts, not idols. I know that sounds offensive, but them same runyons at 18, <laughs> no matter of fact, at 13, 14, they're going to want you to drop them off around the corner so that they can go to them all with their friends. They're not, gonna be wanna see, gonna, they're not going to want to be seen with you. They're going to leave your house one day. Your children are not to be worshipped. Only God is to be worshipped. Let me bring it a little closer. You may say, I don't worship an idol. But if you find yourself talking about the universe and what the universe is going to give you, that's idolatry. Let me put that out there in the universe. Let me manifest this. Let me talk. I'm making the ancestors proud. Let me tell you something about the universe. The universe was created. The universe has a creator. So you're looking too low. You need to lift your eyes up a little higher. The universe is a created thing. The ancestors, the ancestors died. So you consulting with the dead. There's only one that defeated death. And it wasn't your grandma and your grandfather. And, and, and shout out to your grandma and your grand, grandfather, right? We all got grandparents, but they're not to be worshipped. But here's the thing. In our culture, in our age of idolatry, we even sometimes make those good things God things. And when we do that, we make them an idol. But all they do is multiply our sorrows and suffering. And this is what he's pointing out in the text. We can't worship two things at the same time. Have you realized that when you seek your own way and do your own thing, all it does is bring heartache time after time? It may feel good in a moment, but all it brings and does is multiply sorrows to your life. And here's what I need you to know. You cannot be happy and satisfied with God and riding the fence at the same time. You just can't. You can't find joy in in God and joy in the world at the same time. That's not how that works. You have to choose one or the other. Do you not realize that when we pursue other gods, all it does is leave us broken and empty? I love what uh, writer, author, theologian John Stott says about sin. He says, he says this, this is what sin does. The essence of that is exaltation of self. Sin is the exaltation of self. God has designed us to put him first in our lives, others next, and ourselves last. Notice what Stott says, God first, others next, ourselves last. Yet sin convinces us to reverse the order. Here's what sin does. Sin tells us this, that we put ourselves first, we put others next, many times in an attempt just to use them for ourselves. And thirdly, God is somewhere, if anywhere in the distant background, and we turn from worshiping God to worshiping self. We notice that God calls us to love God, love others, love ourselves. Sin tells us this, love yourself, love other people if you can use them, and then if you need God, if he's necessary, then you can add him on too. 
But all that does is multiply sorrows. And I'm here to tell you today that if you are trapped in sin, if you are trapped in some sort of sin and you, you live a life that is contrary to God and, and you want, you love, you, you have an idea of God and you, you want to have a relationship with him, but you're not willing to give up anything and sacrifice for God. Let me tell you this. All of these things are going to do is lead to more sorrow and more sorrow. Sin brings sorrow. Sin brings sorrow. Sin brings sorrow to our lives, but a relationship with God brings so much joy. And here's what I want you to know. Life with God, life in Christ, this is not about perfection, but it is to say that even if things are going haywire around me in my life, there is this joy that I have because of my relationship with God, that there are some things that I get from God that I can't get anywhere else And and so I want to now move from relationship with God, the results of that relationship, but then the rewards of a relationship with God. Let me tell you this. Many people don't want to have a relationship with God, like a real deep, robust relationship with God. Now, I'm not talking about an acknowledgement. Oh, I believe that God exists, but I'm going to do my own thing. I'm not talking about this. I'm, I'm talking about people who have real, thorough, robust relationship with God. Let me tell you something. Let me break the news to you. There are great benefits and rewards to being in a relationship with Jesus. Life in Christ is not boring. Life in Christ is not some repressive thing where God is just keeping you from doing what you want to do. Here's our problem. We don't like what God has to offer because God puts parameters around it. And we want life without rules. But that's not the way that life works. There's so many things that God gives us to enjoy. Money, sex, all of those things All the things that you get quiet about, but you know deep in your heart you want more of. Come on, y'all. You want more of those. And God doesn't say either one of them is bad. But when you put them in the wrong context, they didn't become destructive. But there are rewards to relationship with God. Look at what he says, verses 5 through 8. Lord, you are my portion and my cup of blessing. You hold my future. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I will bless the Lord who counsels me. Even at night when my thoughts trouble me, I will always let the Lord guide me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. And so I want you to, I want to go over a couple of blessings that are in God, a couple of rewards. But the first thing I want you to see is this. He's not worshiping God for God's gifts, he's worshiping God for God. The greatest thing is not what God can give us, but the greatest thing is God himself. The greatest thing is God himself, but with that comes benefits. And one of the first things that God gives us is provision. Reward number one is provision. He says, God, you you are my portion, my cup of blessing. What he's saying is, God, you are my food, you are my drink, you are all that I need. You've, you've prayed the prayer before, God, God this, give us our daily bread, right? This is all he's saying. It's God, you are my source of provision. The first thing that we have in God is provision. But this is, the, this is stuff that we kind of overlook and don't see it as a blessing. Like God provides for us. God gives us food, drink. God gives us air to breathe. But we don't appreciate it. I, some, I, don't, I don't want God to do this, but sometimes I'm like, God, just turn the air off. Just turn the air off. Just, we just, <laughs> Because we take it for granted as if God owes it to us. 
not everybody has food to eat. Not, not, we, live in, we live in the West, so we take these things for granted. But there isn't clean drinking water everywhere. There isn't, you just throw out, we throw out fruit, food every day. Some of us are so bougie, we don't even eat leftovers. Some of us like, I'll, I'll do warmed up spaghetti, but other than that, I'm not doing it. Right? But that speaks of a, of a, a sense of privilege that we don't think we have. But God provides for us. The second thing that God offers us is security. He says, God, you hold my future. How does he know that God holds his future? Because all he has to do is look back at his past. Oftentimes, the indicator that God will take care of us in the future is to look back at what God has already done for us. And let me tell you, Christian, something. We celebrate God not for what he's about to do, but we celebrate God for what he's already done. We celebrate for the forgiveness that we already have. We celebrate him for the redemption that we have. We celebrate for the joy that only comes from God. We celebrate from the peace that we can only find in Christ Jesus. And so if you're looking for God to do something for you, look at what God has already done. We, we have this security in God. He says the boundary lines have fallen for me in present places. He's saying the boundary lines have fallen for me. Oftentimes in those days, the priests of the Levites were allotted these land uh, uh, allotments. They were given these land allotments. And what he's saying is God has given me an allotment and it is a favorite allotment. I'm blessed in the Lord. I don't need to look outside of what God has already given me. I don't need to look outside because I have everything that I need in God. I just need to appreciate it. He's given me a favorable life. As the psalmist said, taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see that he's good. The third thing, and I want to just camp here for a minute, is what we see is he ha- he, he's, in, he's content. He has contentment. He is happy with where God has them, and this is the challenge of our day. Oftentimes we struggle with contentment. If I were willing to bet, most people in the room today are not satisfied with where they are. Some of us want a better job. Say amen. Amen. Stop stop faking like you're humble. No, I'm going to just stick with what I got. No, you're not. You got all kind of just trumped up, just over-exaggerated stuff on your LinkedIn. You, 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 you got all kind of stuff on career building. People still use career builder? Is that what they use, Herb? I don't know what they use these days. I don't know. Herb's like, I'm not looking for a job. <laughs> <laughs> but we, we, we're, we're dissatisfied. I want a better, I want a better relationship. Oh, God, I need, I, need, I need more money. This ain't enough. I got things I want to do. Thank you. <laughs> Finally. But we deal with this discontentment. But what we don't realize is oftentimes our, our discontentment communicates that, God, you're not really that good. God, if it was up to me, I would do a lot better than you're doing right now. God, you're, you're a C student at being God. But David is on the run, and he's content with God. He has less than ideal circumstances, but he finds himself with great contentment. And here's what I think David is doing. David is allowing himself to enjoy the journey as opposed to obsessing over the destination. 
Many of you are waiting for that moment. I'll be happy when. I'll be satisfied when. When when I get here, when this is over, when I get through this, when I have more of this, when I move here, when I get this degree, when I accomplish this thing, when I get this promotion, when I get here, when I have this type of relationship, when I go from single to married, when I go from married to divorce, whatever your thing is. Hopefully that's not the case. When, 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 this, when, this, when this becomes my portion in life, then I'll be content. But let me tell you something. If you're not satisfied in God now, you will not be satisfied when you get your laundry list of things done. It will not satisfy you. It will not, it, it will not, it will not satisfy you. The only, the void that you have in your heart, you think that you need to Fill it with money or you need to fill it with a relationship or a person. That, that's what, okay, this longing I have, I need to fill this with something. But, and this is what my flesh is telling me that I need. So I need to fill it with this. What I'm telling you is this. God created you with a void. In, God created you with a void in your life. God gave you a void. And the problem with the void is, and the thing, the thing is this, those things can't fill it. And there's a reason behind that. God put the void in your life so that he can fill the void. God wants to fill all the voids that you have in your life. All the brokenness, all of the loneliness, all the discontentment. God is saying, no, those other things can't satisfy you. And I'm hoping you will see that, that you will stop the the cycle of insanity, doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results. Instead, you will look to me and see that I am the God who satisfies you. And David has found this. David is enjoying the journey. And the journey matters to David because the journey matters to God. God is not waiting at the end of this magic rainbow for you. God is with you right where you are. And he's inviting you in to be content in him. The fourth blessing that we have is that God counsels him. Verses 7 through 8 says, I'll bless the Lord who counsels me. Even at night when my thoughts trouble me, I will always let the Lord guide me. Here's what he's saying. God lays out a path for victory and success for me. God is my counselor. I want to say this. We live in this culture now where the buzzword is, th- is counseling and therapy. Right? I need Jesus and therapy. That, that might be true. Right? But therapy can never replace God. Your therapist, your counselor that you find is a broken person too. And I don't care how much good advice they give you, it can help you, but it can't save you. But for David, he went to God first. How often do we look elsewhere first when trouble comes and look to God last? And he's inviting us to chase after God first. Seek God for wisdom. James 1 and 5 says this. If any of you lack wisdom, he should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault and it will be given to him. James, the Lord's brother, literally says that if you need wisdom, ask God and God will withhold wisdom from you. Now, if you get impatient before it works itself out, that's on you. But God invites us to seek him for wisdom, to seek him for direction and guidance in what should I do, where should I go, where should I be. And here's the thing. Sometimes we don't like God's advice because God's advice is sit right where you are. This is where I'm building character in you. This is where I'm growing you. Right here in this job you don't like. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get you to a point where you walk into the building from the parking lot and you have a good attitude. 
I'm waiting for you to get to the point and say, God, this might not be the job that my flesh wants, but God, I thank you for this job anyway. God, you know what? I'm not going to wait till I get the job of my dreams to show up on time. No, God, I'm going to be a good steward today. If the job starts at 9, I'm showing up at 8.55. I'm walking into the, into the building with a good attitude. I'm saying good morning to everybody because I know this job ain't about me. You actually have me here because of you. And so, God, I'm walking in here. My flesh is telling me something different, but, Lord, I'm going to walk in this job. I'm blessed and highly favored. How are you? God is good all the time. God, I'm saying this, although my flesh doesn't feel like it, I'm doing it because I know it's the right thing to do. I'm not going to bow down at the altar of my feelings because my feelings are not always telling me the truth. I'm going to trust what thus saith the Lord. And God says, this is the job I gave you. Be faithful. Be a good steward of it. If you want to be made ruler over the much, you got to be faithful in this little But we don't enjoy the journey because we're too busy focused on the destination. But what he's saying is, I will always let the Lord guide me. Not my feelings, not my emotions. They're not king, but I let the Lord guide me because he's at my right hand and I won't be shaken. And what he's saying is this, God brings stability to our lives. God brings stability and security. But here's the thing that the psalmist realized. He trusts God so much. He's so secure in God that he believes that God's security goes past this life into the next. I'm so secure in God. I believe that God will keep me past the grave. Let's look at 9 through 11 and I'm almost done. The fourth thing we'll see is resurrection. So we looked at relationship. We looked at results of that relationship, the rewards of relationship. And now we'll look at the resurrection. Therefore, my verses 9 through 11, therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My body also rests securely for you will not abandon me to show. You will not allow your faithful one to see decay You reveal the path of life to me in your presence is abundant joy at your right hand are eternal pleasures. And the first thing I want you to notice, therefore, my heart is glad my whole being rejoices. There is an obvious correlation between one's faithfulness to God and the joy that they find in relationship with God. If you are in relationship with God and it is your primary, your priority, the correlation is, is that you will find joy. You can't find true joy outside of God's presence. We were not created to do that. You might be happy for a moment, but you won't find everlasting joy. Because joy says, whether I have all the money or I have no money at all, doesn't leave me. Because it's not predicated on those things, it's predicated on God. And so, this is possible for us too. By God's grace, we can snap out of the spiritual malaise that we're in and train our minds to think on the goodness of God and the contentment that comes in him. David says, God has got me covered from now until eternity. Even in death, I have confidence that God would not allow my body to see decay. That, that this, this is something radical. That, that, that he, He's so close with God, he believes that God won't even abandon him in death. That, that, that how, how radical do you have to think that even if I die, God ain't leaving me? 
Even if I die, God won't leave me. This is not about David's faithfulness. This is about God's faithfulness. That David is hopeful, not just in life, but in life after death. That David is hopeful. You, you will not allow your faithful one to see decay, meaning there's no time whether in life or death that I'll ever be alienated from God. That God will be that faithful. He believed that his relationship with God would not end even when he died. And th this should leave us breathless. How dare David, a normal man, say that God won't even leave me. And even when I die, I'll have a relationship with God. God won't allow my body to see decay. How, how could David even think this? David is a soldier. He sees men die all the time in battle. But somehow, someway, he thinks that the Lord won't allow his body to see decay. What would make David think that? The only thing I can draw the conclusion that I can draw is that David has faith. David has faith. David trusts God that much. The problem in the text is this, is that David did die. And David's body did see decay. David died. David's son eventually sat on the throne. His name's Solomon. So David died. David, David's in the grave now. If we go to Israel, David is somewhere in a grave. He's somewhere in, in some land, and is, David's body is rotted. Maybe it's nothing now. But, but David's body saw the, so So how can David say this if it's not a reality? Because this psalm is not just about David. This psalm is also prophetic. David, by faith, is seeing something different. David is talking about something else. David is not just talking about something else. David is talking about somebody else. David could not literally know what was going to happen. David couldn't see that far in advance. And David is, by faith, seeing something different because faith for David is not just faith for faith. Oh, I got faith in faith. No, David for David and for us, faith has an object. Your faith is not a faith unless it's placed on something. And he rests his faith on God. And so David sees something, and I don't even think David knows what he's seeing, but the apostles in the New Testament church knew what they were seeing. And I want to read this to you. Here's what they realize. And this is Peter's sermon at Pentecost. Acts chapter 2, verses 22, 38 says this. Fellow Israelites, listen to these words. This Jesus of Nazareth was a man attested to you by God, with miracles, wonders, and signs that God did among you through him, just as you yourselves know, though he was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge, you used lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. Verse 24, God raised him up, ending the pains of death because it was not possible. Oh, my God. It was not possible for him to be held by death. For David says of him, I saw the Lord ever before me because he is on my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. Peter is quoting Psalm 16. Mark, this is a thousand years later. Moreover, my flesh will rest in hope because you will not abandon me in Hades or allow your Holy One to see decay. You'll reveal the paths of life to me. You will fill me with gladness in your presence. Brothers and sisters, I can confidently speak to you about the patriarch David. He is both dead and buried. And his tomb is with us to this day. Since he was a prophet, though, he knew that God had sworn an oath to him to seat one of his descendants on the, throne, on the throne. And seeing what was to come, he spoke concerning the resurrection of the Messiah. He was not abandoned in Hades, and his flesh did not experience decay. And verse 32 says this, God has raised this Jesus, 
and we're all witnesses. Peter wasn't the only one that knew this. Apostle Paul preached in Acts 13 in Antioch. He says this, for God had promised to raise him from the dead, not leaving him to ride in the grave. He said, I will give you the sacred blessings I promised to David. Another psalm explains it more fully. He's referencing Psalm 16. You will not allow your holy one to ride in the grave. This is not a reference to David. For after David had done the will of God in his own generation, he died and was buried with his ancestors and his body decayed. No, it was a reference to someone else, someone whom God raised and his body did not decay. Brothers, listen, we are to proclaim that through this man, Jesus, there is forgiveness of sins. Everyone who believes in him is made right in God's sight, something the law of Moses could never do. All the people in the New Testament believe that David was talking about Jesus. The only person to ever die and raise again. Is Jesus. When we look at Jesus in Luke's gospel, Jesus says that the law of Moses, the Psalms and the prophets, they're about me. Jesus is saying all of the New Testament, Old Testament is pointing to me. It was building up to my incarnation. So here's what we need to know. That for Jesus to go to the cross, to take on our sins, although he did nothing wrong, he was crucified for the sins of his people. He took on the punishment and the penalty that we all deserve for our own sin. He took it on himself so that you and I could go free. He was died. He died. He was dead and buried on a Friday in the tomb of a man named Joseph of Arimathea. Matthew 28 tells us that three days later, as the first day of the week was dawning, on Sunday morning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to view the tomb, but a violent earthquake took place because an angel of the Lord had descended from heaven, and he rolled back the stone, and he says, I know who you are looking for. You're looking for Jesus who was crucified, but I got good news for you. He ain't here no more. He's gone. He's risen from the grave. He has defeated sin. He's defeated Satan. He's defeated death. Jesus did die, but his body didn't decay. Jesus, the son of David, arose from death. He went to the place of death. He went to the place that no one else has ever escaped from. He went to the land of no return. And I got to tell you this today, that death did not have the last word. Because Jesus got out of that grave. I love what Acts 2 says. It was impossible for death to hold him down. And maybe you don't appreciate that, but do you know Romans 3, 23 says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And when it says all, that includes you and I. We've all, no one in this room would say I am perfect and I make no mistakes. We would all admit whether we're Christian or not that we are sinners, that there's something fundamentally wrong with who we are, that we do things at times that we did not intend to do and we do things that we do not want to do. We are all fallen. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But you know what? That means something. Because Romans 1 1 and 18 tells us that for God's wrath is revealed against all unrighteousness. That our relationship with God is not neutral. Either you are a son or a daughter or you are an enemy of God. This is what I want to share with you today. That you may be here today and you may say, well, I'm in church, so I acknowledge God. He's cool. But 
I don't really have a fluid relationship with God like that. I'm not like y'all saved people. I want to tell you this. There is no such thing as a neutral relationship with God. How can you be neutral with that, with that which created you? We all have a real relationship with God, whether you say you have one with him or not. He has one with you. You ever, you ever, see, you ever had a guy in your high school had a crush on a girl, and she didn't want nothing to do with him? And he kept saying, you my girl. We go together. And God is like, yes, you do. We together. We're in a relationship whether you call me back or not. Whether you respond to my text or not, we in a relationship. But the result of that relationship is not inconsequential. For the wrath of God is revealed against unrighteousness. God is a righteous and justice judge. Everybody wants justice in the world until God says, I want justice too. Because if God gets justice, none of us going to survive. Because you can't sin against a holy God and walk away scotch-free. You have to pay for your sins. If a criminal got away with murder and we knew it and we saw it on tape, we would all cry out, injustice. That's wrong. Do something. They should go to jail. They should go to prison. Because we love justice. But God sees us commit crimes against him every day. We are guilty. And the wrath of God was breathing, is breathing down our necks. But Jesus says, hold on, wait a minute. He comes and stands between us and God. And he takes on the wrath of God. He takes on your penalty. He takes on what you deserve. He took it on himself on the cross. He shed the blood that you deserve to shed. He took on your sins, paid the penalty. He died for your sins because the Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. And so here's the thing we need to know. That if we want salvation, it can only be, it can Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. And oftentimes we all, what about other ways? You can't tell me there's one way to God. There's got to be other ways to God. As opposed to saying, God, thank you for making a way. When Jesus got out of that grave, it changed everything. Because if he did not get out of that grave, we would still be in our sins. But because he got up, we have forgiveness if we put in our trust in Christ and what he's done for us. I'll leave you with this. Theologian Tim Keller said this, if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? We might as well all pack it up and go on. The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. And I can tell you, brothers and sisters, with certainty, that Christ is risen from the grave. And if you are here today and you don't have a relationship with Jesus, this is an opportunity for you to repent of your sins and put your faith and your trust in him. Don't think that you got to have all the answers that you've ever had in order to trust God. You have no idea how they made the food at the last restaurant you went to. You didn't see them make it. 
You just had faith that what they brought to you was good for you. And if you can trust a sinful chef in a kitchen that you've never walked into by a chef you've never met, then you can, tr you can trust the God that you can see his creation every day in the open. This is an invitation for you to trust in Jesus today. If you are not a Christian today, if you are not walking with the Lord, this is an opportunity for you to change. Your, God can change your life today if you trust in him. But if not, let's not walk away under a false notion that we are just good with God because we feel like it. We don't get to determine our relationship with God. God does. I don't get to determine if I'm good with my wife. She gets to determined if I'm good with her. You don't get to determine if you're good with God. God gets to determine that. And the way God says you get good with me is to trust in my son, Jesus. So all eyes closed, heads bowed. We hope you enjoyed today's message. If it was a blessing to you, please consider visiting our website, outpouringorlando.com to connect with us and to also give financial support. If you are ever in the Orlando area, we would love to serve and worship with you. Have a wonderful week.